So when we were talking as a staff um, a number of months ago and talked about the beginning of this teaching series that's beginning today, uh, I got some strange looks, uh, especially from some of the people that help with communications here. Because it was like, well, what we're going to talk about is conflict and how to do that. And they're like, well, why do you want to talk about that? Like, that's, a, that's an odd thing to talk about because we don't like it. We avoid it as much as possible, most of us, right? Unless it's absolutely necessary. We know those settings where we just kind of have to kind of get through it, right? Maybe it's a family reunion. Maybe it's a holiday. You know that person that at the meal is going to say something, and you're like, you know what they're going to say going in? Just smile. Just, it's just an hour, and then it's done, and there's 365 days that we do this again, and it's not worth making it into a big thing, right? Because if it becomes a big thing, then we've got to deal with it, and so just kind of get through. Just keep everything's all right. Or maybe there's that person in your work, that you just sit there and go, okay, I know what they're going to say. Just got to kind of get through it. We're just going to smile. We're going to let them have their peace. Then we'll keep going. I'm not going to turn this into a big deal, right? We are taught from a young age how to avoid conflict. What are the things we're not supposed to talk about, when we, especially when we first meet people? Politics and religion, right? We all know this, right? Why don't we do that? Because it can create really uncomfortable moments, right? So we just learn not to talk about it in order to what? Avoid conflict. So we don't deal with it unless we really have to. We have also experienced, many of us, why we don't like conflict. Probably many of us have very painful stories that we can point to where conflict has gone bad, it has become destructive, where we maybe became alienated from people, maybe we are alienated from people today. In our family and friendships, because we had conflict, it didn't go well, and things just dissolved. So we've been burned by it. And we've been burned by when things haven't gone well. We even see it in uh, our world today. We see it in our politics today. You know, I am more aware of who has cut, what presidential candidate has cut someone down on Twitter than I am of what they actually want to do policy-wise when they become president of the United States. And our media fuels this. We, we had a, a Democratic debate this past week. I didn't get to watch it. And uh, so on the next morning, there was a like four minute top news story, four minute sum up of the presidential debate last night, Democratic debate, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton. So I watched it and you would have thought it was a WWF cage match that took place. They reported then Sanders said this and they just showed these one-liners back and forth and the reaction of the crowd and what people thought and the oohs and ahs. And what happened at the end of that four-minute report is I, had, who had not watched the debate, had no idea what either of them had actually said about policy. I had just become more informed of who had had the best one-liner that could make it on TV. And so we see that, and I think a lot of us are like, oh, I don't really like that. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't like these destructive kind of feeling. It makes me feel icky to sort of see this. So we see this. We have conflict that's gone bad in our lives, and we learn to avoid it. We've seen it and see it publicly. And so we just sort of learn. It's like, I don't really want to be a part of a situation like that. But when we become conflict avoiders, we harm ourselves, and we harm those around us. Take, for instance, in a work environment. Patrick Lencioni is a speaker and an author who talks about leadership and management, and he has a great book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. He's really meaning a team in a workplace, but you could put this uh, almost anywhere, you know, a committee or something else. Five dysfunctions of a team, and he says that one of the most common dysfunctions of any team is a lack of conflict. 
And he says that sounds odd because most of us think, oh, well, it's a harmonious work environment and everything's going well and there's never any conflict on things. But he said that, that a lack of conflict when he serves as a consultant is, is never good. And he said that, not, and when he says that he wants there to be conflict, he's not talking about destructive people slamming doors, walking out of meetings, calling each other names. But he says that when there's a lack of conflict in any team, what is sacrificed is growth, creativity, ingenuity. Because everyone's just like, well, this is what we've always done, and I guess none of us have a problem with it, so we'll just sort of keep doing what we do. Churches are infamous for this, right? We just sort of keep doing what we do, and it's what we've always done, so we just kind of keep doing it this way, right? No one's raising a red flag, so we'll just sort of keep doing it. He says it's one of the most, over time, destructive elements to any team and the growth of any team, because growth and conflict go hand in hand. We need to learn to do this for our own growth, and that is true spiritually as well. And unfortunately, friends, Christians in the church are really no better at conflict much of the time than anybody else. We split and we divide and we argue and we kind of have this stuff. And I think part of it is because there's this erroneous idea that you can't be a Christian and have conflict as a healthy part of your life. There's this idea that we're all nice all the time and we're just so nice and everybody's just so nice. And if you have conflict in your life, it's a sign that there's something kind of not right spiritually. To illustrate this, and I've said this to some of you before, I once had a couple at a previous church where I worked who had asked if I would officiate their wedding. They'd just gotten engaged and they asked to come meet with me. Now, I had never really talked to them that much before, but we had our first meeting and they walked in and they seemed great. They seemed like just a lovely young couple. And they were just in love and they're telling me how in love they are and how great it is. And then they said, you know, and, and we've really worked hard at our relationship and we've really tried to pursue each other in, in godly ways. And I'm like, that's, that's wonderful, that's great. And they said, you know, and so we've really worked at listening and talking and, 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 and what it's meant is among many things, we've never had a disagreement. And I said, you what? And they said, we've never, ever had a disagreement. Isn't that amazing? And I said, well, let's define disagreement. Do you mean like you've never been in a screaming match, someone walking out throwing a shoe at somebody else like disagreement? Or do you mean you've actually never, ever disagreed about something? Like we have never disagreed about, we have this godly relationship and we just never disagreed about anything. And I said, guys, this is really bad. It's really, 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 really unhealthy. Because one of three things is going on. Number one, you met four days ago and you loved each other so much you just got engaged and you're just kind of so in love that you've not learned who each other is. That's option one and that's not good. Option two is you're lying to me right now to try to impress me for some reason. Or option three, and this is most, li most likely, you're lying to each other. That one of you at least is bottling up a lot of what you feel in order to keep the peace and to make things okay with the other one. Does that resonate with either? Does either of you feel like you're doing it? And they proceeded to have a fight right there in my office about which one of them had been bottling up their feelings the most in order to keep things okay in the relationship. And I think it was one of the healthiest things that they got to do. It's one of the healthiest premarital counseling sessions we had. But there was this idea, like, we were with this godly thing, and so we just don't have any disagreements and everything's okay. We believe, like what Patrick Lencioni is talking about, that growth and conflict go hand in hand. We are not trying to create a situation of conflict avoiding. Now, we're not going to put that in the vision statement of, co of covenant, come have fights here, but in essence, we actually want to create situations where there are healthy and, and redemptive ways that we are in conflict with each other so that we can grow. 
For instance, we had a great launch of covenant groups of our small group ministry. We're going to be launching a lot more of them in the fall. It's this wonderful thing of small groups of people getting together and doing life. If you're in a covenant group or you're in a relationship with someone here, you're in a mentoring relationship and you've been meeting for like a few months and y'all haven't had some degree of conflict, your group isn't functioning very well. Because you're just sort of keeping everything happy and everybody's okay. Those are meant to get together and to have someone look at you and go, why did you respond that way? Or why do you do things this way? Or why do you all have this pattern that you keep going? It's meant to invest in those kinds of, of situations. If you're not having any degree of conflict and everyone just gets along all the time, it's not working because we're not growing. Bruce Larson was the pastor of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington several decades ago, and his church was going through some conflict, which any human community does from time to time. And he said this. He said, every single Christian has to make the decision when it comes to church. Do you want to be in a church where you're told you're right, or do you want to be in a church where you grow? Do you want to be in a church where you're told you're right, or do you want to be in a church where you grow? Because those are two mutually exclusive things. Now, any of us, no matter who we are, could go find a church that just reinforces everything we already think. Everything we already believe about ourselves and the world and how we think and how we vote and how we look and everything else, we could find that. And in the short run, that's a very comforting thing because it just reinforces what we already think. But unfortunately, there's going to be a lack of conflict there because we're just so right and everyone's just like us and we see the world the exact same way and everybody else is just so wrong and how could they see it any other way? But we're never going to grow. We're never going to change. We're never going to be challenged. Do you want to be a part of a church where you're told you're right? Or do you want to be part of a church where you grow? For most of us, our natural instinct is to be in a church where we're told we're right. Because it's so much easier in the short run. I love to be told I'm right. I don't know if y'all are the same way. I love to be told I'm right because I am right most of the time. <laughs> and I know that. And it's good when people agree with me. I love to be told I'm right, but I need to grow. I love to be told I'm right, but I need to grow. What kind of community do you want to be a part of? If you want to grow, there is no way for that to happen without conflict happening in healthy and constructive ways. That's why we're talking about this series. It's a critically important thing for ourselves, for our marriages, for our families, for our friendships, that we understand God's call towards growth and transformation. And conflict will always be a part of that. To do this, we're going to look at one book of the Bible over these three weeks. We're going to read the entire book. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. In fact, it doesn't have chapters. It's just verses. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to an individual named Philemon. And today we're going to read the first third of the book. Now, I need to give you an overview of this story because you're not going to see that this book, what we're going to read today, you're like, I don't understand why we're talking about conflict. Because it's not going to appear like there is any in the first third of the book. But to understand this story, you have to understand there's three people. There's three individuals whose names you need to be familiar with over these three weeks. The first is Paul, the Apostle Paul who writes this. He's written much of the New Testament. He is writing a letter, and the letter is to the second individual you need to know whose name is Philemon. Philemon, what we know about Philemon is that he is a wealthy individual who has a church in his home. 
He and his family host a church. We think they're in a city called Colossae, where Paul, we know from the book of Acts, went and set up a church. So Philemon came to faith under the ministry of Paul. He knows Paul personally. Paul's had a huge impact on his life. And Philemon is a leader in the early church. And so the churches didn't meet in buildings like this. They met in homes and neighborhoods. And Philemon's house was the church for this little congregation that Paul had helped start. We know that he's wealthy because he had a, church, a house that could host a, a crowd of people, but we also know that he's wealthy. And this is the subject of the conflict of the letter because Philemon is a slave owner. Now that's going to sound very odd to many of us because you're like, he was a Christian leader and a slave owner. In our world, thankfully, we don't recognize how those can go together. Now slavery is still very alive in the world today as we've talked about before. We just keep it quiet. But at the time, it was very much in public. It was very much an accepted part of culture that wealthy individuals at times had people who owed them debt and those people would become slaves. And so Philemon had a slave. And as weird as it sounds to us, he probably didn't see any problem with being a new Christian and being a slave owner. He probably did not have any concept of why that would be a problem to anyone. The third person in the story is the name of his slave. We know he had at least one, and the name of this slave is Onesimus. Now, what we know about Onesimus is this. Onesimus is a slave to Philemon, and he has run away. He probably came to faith and became a Christian at the same time that his master Philemon did. And in coming to faith, his life is changed by the gospel. And as Paul leaves Colossae and moves on to other cities to spread the gospel and plant churches, Philemon, I mean, Onesimus runs away from Philemon and joins Paul. And Paul welcomes him in, this runaway slave. And Onesimus becomes a church planting partner. He works with Paul. He does the ministry of spreading the gospel with Paul. And the letter we have here is from Paul to Philemon, the slave owner, whom Paul knows, who has this church in his home, and Philemon is being told by Paul, you need to free this slave. They're about to have a very intense conversation, conflict. And I believe that how Paul does this could teach us all something about how we are called to engage in conflict in redemptive ways. Okay? So this is, the, this is the backdrop that you've got to know for this story. And today we're going to be reading the first seven verses of Philemon. I invite you to listen now to God's word to us this morning. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, may we learn and engage your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would speak to us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reason I had to give you an overview of the book is because in those seven verses, which is the first third of the book, you would have no idea that Paul is about to really go after Philemon on a very, very controversial subject. You would have no idea that this huge conflict is about to take place. And that's why... We want to stop for a second and realize the backdrop in which Paul engages in this conflict. 
Because it'd be one thing if Paul, and what we would expect maybe, is something he feels passionate about, is that like in verse one or two, he would just come out of the gates saying, you know, how do you do this? And how could you have this attitude? And how could you live this way? And what would you, it would seem natural. But instead, Paul spends the first third of the letter talking about what he admires about Philemon. Talking about the things he appreciates about Philemon. Talking about how he remembers him and prays for him. How he gives thanks for Philemon. He remarks about how Philemon is an encourager of other people. And that he remarks on Philemon's love. He's very specific about the things that he says this slave owner is doing. And these are not words we would naturally think about slave owner, right? It's like we don't think of slave owner, encourager, someone who is loving and refreshing towards other people. But Paul writes these words, and I think that what happens here is that we see about conflict is that Paul outlines that conflict is going to take place, but it's going to take place against a backdrop of love and mutual respect and encouragement. And so Paul very much details the love and respect and thanksgiving he has for Philemon, because that needs to be in the background of everything Paul is about to say. And you think about the kind of conflict in our families or in our political system or in our places of work, how different it would be if we were able to move towards conflict, but always knowing it was against a backdrop of love and encouragement and thanksgiving. How different would that feel? I mean, think about how different that would be for the person that you're going to be in conflict with. Think about how different this was for Philemon. My guess is if Philemon had gotten this letter from Paul, this person who he loved and, and had respect for and, if, and it impacted his life, if Philemon had just opened this letter and Paul immediately was like, how can you do this? And this is so wrong. And how can you make these decisions? Philemon is probably going to be disappointed. He's going to be sad. But my guess is a wall will come down with him at that point. You see, when we become people who are constantly just going, well, why do you do that? And why do you do that? And why do you do that? And we're that critical voice in the life of somebody else. That does not change them. That does not impact them. That does not influence them. It makes them turn their ears off and it makes them defensive. Paul is saying, no, no, no. I need you to know I pray for you. I need you to know I value you. I need you to know that you encourage me. I need you to know that I see the love of what's going on in your life. And I think that that would open Philemon to listening and hearing. We all know those people in our lives who just feel like this critical voice all the time. All of us have that. And if we're really honest, all of us are that to others. That doesn't bring about change. That doesn't influence or impact people. Paul takes the time to say what he loves and appreciates. Imagine in our political system if that happened. Imagine if the next presidential debate, if one-third of the debate had to be the candidates talking about what they loved, respected, learned from, and admired about each other. And you're like, well, that's not how it works. Well, what if it did? What if it did? Now, people wouldn't tune into it. It wouldn't get the great ratings that we see. It wouldn't be covered in the same way. But boy, would it maybe change the culture and fabric of those conversations if they had to look at each other and say, we don't see eye to eye on things. Paul is not just washing over his differences. He's very passionate about this. But if it started with, I'm going to tell you what I love and respect and, and am encouraged by from you and your life and your positions. It's going to open people up to listening and hearing. We've got to be setters of that kind of culture. But the other thing is that it doesn't just influence Philemon, but I bet it also is a spiritual discipline for Paul in his own heart. 
Because listen, friends, one of the easiest and most natural things to do is to label people who are different from us, label people who disagree with us. It would be easy for Paul to go, well, you're a slave owner, what do you know? And he creates Philemon immediately into this two-dimensional figure who's only defined by what Paul disagrees with him on. But by talking in detail about the things he loves and is encouraged by, Paul is remembering that Philemon is a three-dimensional person with some good and some bad. He's protecting his own heart because the easiest thing in our culture is to just label people and see them as different and have them over here. It's a conservative, closed-minded, Republican, Baptist, Democrat, Presbyterian, liberal, wishy-washy. It is so easy to do that, and our hearts are impacted when we do them. They become hard. They become self-righteous. They become things that are not going to be beautiful to ourselves or encouraging or transforming for anybody else, but sure is easy to live behind those labels and those walls and those fences and those differences. Paul doesn't engage in that kind of relationship. Everything that he is about is against the backdrop of love and respect and encouragement before he moves towards the area of disagreement. It frees his own heart, and my bet is it frees Philemon's too. Changes the nature of the discussion they're about to have over slavery. Now, I would bet that a lot of you would sit there and go, well, I kind of do that. I feel like I'm an encouraging, positive person. But my bet is we're not as good at or natural at that as we think we are. I wonder if the people we love and respect and encourage by know how we really feel or if we just kind of feel it. You know what I mean by that? I wonder if we're as good at telling people, like Paul is telling Philemon here, of the encouragement and the difference they've made in our life. Because I found that people often don't do it as much as they feel it. Recently, a couple weeks ago, we were at dinner, me and my wife and my two little girls, uh, Miriam and Hannah, and we are getting to that age, and our girls are getting to that age where we as parents are more annoying than we used to be. And we knew that this age was coming, but it's here. And so we kind of, we're just more annoying, and that may be our, our fault, but uh, it certainly seems to be at times. But we are, we are hit this phase, right? And so there was kind of this dinner where it was, a, you know, we're all kind of all bickering and rolling eyes, and I can't stand the eye rolling, but it happens now, and so there's all this stuff. And finally, we just sat at the table. We're like, listen, you know what we're going to do? We're going to look to the person to our left now, and we're going to look them in the eye, and we're going to tell them what we love and appreciate about each other. Now, if you had asked me before that moment, is that going to be a radically new thing for your family? I would be like, no, we tell our kids, we encourage them. We... It was really weird. It was really different for me to look to my left and my youngest daughter, Hannah, and to look her in the eyes and to say, Hannah, these are the things I love and appreciate about you. I felt somewhat ashamed of how unnatural that was, even though I think I do it really well. And then Hannah had to look at my wife, Beth. And then Beth had to look at my oldest daughter, Miriam. And then the true spiritual test is that our oldest daughter, Miriam, had to look at me (laughs) and to say, Daddy, here are the things I love and appreciate about you. And it took some soul searching, but she found something that she can (laughs) make. So this one part of me was like, gosh, I would think we'd be good at this, but this is not as natural as I think. I think we think we're better at this than we actually are at doing what Paul does, of just pouring our hearts hard in Thanksgiving. I think we assume that people know how we feel much better than we actually tell them. And here's the other part. It was amazing the transformation at dinner that night. 
I still remember what my oldest daughter looked at me and said. It made an impact on me, what she looked at me and said. It changes things. When we explicitly pursue setting a value of love and respect and thanksgiving and encouragement. And so that is what I hope for you this week. Not just in places of conflict, but to have relationships where you can grow and be changed. They must be built on that foundation of love and respect and thanksgiving. How do you need to tell somebody this week? What's the conversation you need to have in your family, with your spouse, with your children, with your parents? What's the letter you maybe need to write if that's more comfortable for you? What's the email that you need to write? What's the phone call you need to have? We need to be cultivators of this value so that our relationships are strong and therefore we can change and change others through them. That's why God gives us relationships. They've got to be built this way. Paul takes the time to do it in this letter. May we do the same this day and this week and watch what God can do. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this week. Help us to be encouragers, cultivators of what is good and loving and right and true. Help us to express our hearts and our thanksgiving for other people. Help us to look at them in the eye and not just feel it, but say it or express it. May we build relationships founded and taking the time to express our gratitude for each other. May we live this way this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.